to work on robotics that had a, you know a, a benefit to them uh, that could help our warfighter that could help you know national security. Um, you know, and, and I know there's some controversy about that. I know some people shy away from that kind of work, but we were always interested in sort of the, the defensive and safety capabilities that robots could offer people who were willing to put themselves in harm's way to help and protect the rest of us. Hi, I'm Tom Galuzzo, founder and chief technology officer at Iron Robotics. Join in for my new podcast, Crazy Hard Robots, where we're sharing the stories of some of the crazy smart people building the robotics technologies and companies of the future. I have over 20 years of experience building autonomous robots, so I know how challenging some of these systems can be. Listen in and learn as I chat with fellow scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, and investors building the robotics industry today. Hey, Parag. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're talking crazy hard robots today with my good friend and guest, Parag Batavia. Uh, welcome. And uh, it's great to have a fellow Pittsburgh yes. robotics entrepreneur on Absolutely. the show. Yeah, so that's fantastic. So today, I'm really excited to hear about your experience. Uh, you've been a part of some amazing startup companies, and you're going to be telling our audience or sharing with our audience some things that you do and maybe some things you definitely don't want to do yep. anymore when you're starting a robotics company. So I think you have some of the best experience possibly to, to offer that because you've been a part of a successful robotics startup exit. Actually, yeah. multiple, one, yeah. of, one of which was solely your own. Yeah. So, so one was completely my own. Uh, yep. Another one was one where I was an early employee. Yep. Uh, but I've been fortunate to, to have been through this a couple times now. Yeah. So you are the authority on what you want to <laughs> do if you're going to sell a robotics company or build a robotics company for a successful yeah. exit. Yeah. And definitely things you we'll want to, false paths you want to avoid and that kind yes. of stuff. Yes, definitely the false paths. Okay. So I think that's almost more valuable for folks to know going into a, a startup, hey, what do I want to avoid? Yeah. What and I, I, I think, wanna... you know, um, there are definitely things I did 12 years ago. Yeah. that were legitimately good things to do at that time that maybe wouldn't be quite as good to do today in yeah. a different ecosystem, in a different environment. I'm dying to hear that. So so take us back before you started a robotics company, back in the day. How yeah. did you get on this career path? How, how did it start um, Wow. Uh, so we can actually go pretty far back. Um, I got not in, too far. Not too far. No, no, I'll, 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 yeah, yeah, you don't. Need, yeah, I, I was, I was <laughs> born, in, you know, with a robot in my hand. Um, right. So uh, it was actually back to high school. Um, okay. Had great electronics robotics program in high school. That got me into college. Uh, at college, I, I went to the University of Southern California. Uh, I was lucky enough to work in the robotics lab there as an undergrad. Got lots of very cool experience. Uh, mentorship from a professor George Becky, who uh, has been one of the the big names in robotics over the last 50 plus years. Awesome. Um, that experience uh, and everyone I worked with there, and I was in Southern California at the time, told me, you have to go to Pittsburgh. And, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin. So the last thing I was thinking of, someday I want to grow up and live in Pittsburgh. Right. Uh, but they're all saying, look, Carnegie Mellon. That's Going the, from cold to cold. Cold to cold. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, I got used to LA, the weather, the warmth, all that. Um, but yeah, they, they were very insistent. If you want to do robotics, and, and this was you know in the mid to late '90s, even back then, Carnegie Mellon's the place to be. That's cool. Uh, so I applied, um, and somebody typed the social security wrong number wrong or something, and I got in. Um, and and so, <laughs> so this was for grad school. This is for grad school. I applied to the PhD program. 
Yes. Well, but I didn't realize you did robotics in high school uh, as well. We had a great Votech program. What What was program you were doing like what what did you just build stuff for like was it a hobby thing or was it a competition or? no uh, they didn't have competitions back then there was no okay, us yeah. first no there's no first lego league any of that uh we just had a high school teacher who was passionate about this stuff in, in their electronics program yeah. so the official track was you know electronics tech electronics engineering uh but we would work with heathkit hero robots for anyone who remembers what those are there's the heathkit hero one and the heathkit hero 2000 uh these were some of the earliest educational kits available. Uh, I'm not even sure if Heathkit exists anymore. I I've never heard of it. Well, okay. okay. Yeah, so, I'm I don't, so what did it do? Like, how, <laughs> how did it work? Well, uh, so... I've probably seen it before, to yeah, be honest, the, the, but I don't the, remember by the, name. Yeah, the Heathkit, uh, the Hero 1 was probably about two feet high. Um, it was uh, two wheels and a caster wheel. Okay. Uh, metal yeah. frame, yep. electronics boards surrounding it. Okay. Uh, had a couple of sonars on it, uh, yep. some light sensors. Yep. And um, you programmed it with a hexadecimal keypad. So it was that old school. Nice. Right? To give it very basic commands. Uh, you could, it did have an RS-232 interface, so you could load code into it. That's a serial interface. That's a serial for, interface. For the kids at home. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. <laughs> I've that's, never that, heard yeah, of RS-232. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so we would make it just do very simple things, right? You know, follow along. This, the same stuff you would do in First Lego League or uh, any of the STEM programs nowadays, except this was... In you know 1987 to 1991, um, so, so this was just a part of a high school class. It's part just of a high school to, class to learn exactly programming robots. Exactly mobile robots. Exactly. And so then when I got to college, I had to look for a work study job. Okay. Because um, that was part of my whole financial deal. Uh, and so what did was, you go to study in college? Did you go to study robotics? Or? Uh, uh, computer engineering. Okay. Yeah, computer science, it. computer engineering. So there there was no robotics program. Yep. Uh, there was a robotics lab. Um, and so that robotics lab, I, I interviewed there and I told them, hey, you know, I used to work with this Heathkit Hero 1 uh, and Hero 2000 and a light went off because at that very moment in time, the robotics lab uh, at USC, they were helping the drama department put on a uh, production of a play called Rossum's Universal Robots, right? So this play, R-U-R, is uh, by uh, playwright Carol Kopek, uh is a Czech playwright. And it's where the term robot came from. Right. Right. And so, uh, hey, look, undergrad, cheap labor, and he's worked with Heathkit Hero Ones, which we want to use as a prop on this play. That's cool. So I promptly got uh, recruited to, you know, okay, be the person who interfaces a radio controlled uh, remote, RC remote, to this Heathkit Hero One. Uh, and got so, it. you know, because I knew a little bit about it, I knew how to run the motors, I knew how to make it move. Um, so, you know, a little RC interface, all that stuff. Uh, and we did that. Uh, and this was the first time I'd ever programmed in C or done anything that was a little bit higher level. Uh, and so I made all the beginner mistakes, right? I wrote my code and I sent it over to the grad student and he said, did you test it? I said, no, it compiles, right? <laughs> and, 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 you know, you joke about that, but people make those mistakes. And I made all of those mistakes, um, but I was- It should work flawlessly. It should be, of course. Which it, it did, I'm sure it did. Compiled, ship it, right? <laughs> um, and, and so I was really fortunate. Uh, you know, I, I got to work with great mentors- uh, grad students, um, some of whom uh, ended up running the computer science department at USC, some of whom became faculty at other uh, at UMass and other organizations. Um, so I got great training as an undergrad, uh, way beyond anything I had a right to expect going into the program. Now, um, the, the key question here is, were you the guy that controlled the robot during the plays? No, 
They were smart so enough you, you to not hand, allow that. <laughs> you handed yes. it off to like, this was like a robot puppeteer Basically. person. That exactly. Was, okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting uh, doing robotics in Los Angeles around that time because they were just starting to use it as a prop. Right. Um, I remember needing a little bit extra money and getting hired to interface a data, an old data glove, right? So these are gloves you would put on. They have fiber optic sensors on them and they kind of measure your finger movement, right? And interfacing that to a little uh, f- uh, five-fingered arm. And there was this old Jeff Bridges movie called Blown Away. Uh, and at the beginning of the movie, um, they have to defuse this bomb. And the way, th- in order to keep the bomb from blowing up, somebody had to keep typing on a computer. And the person was getting tired, if I remember how it went. And so the, the robot had to keep typing on the computer to keep the bomb from blowing up. <laughs> and so they wanted this prop. And they wanted you know, somebody to be able to have a data glove in the background. And this robot sitting there typing, typing away. Uh, and so we got to work on things like that. It, it was a very interesting time. So you actually got to work on this prop that was in the movie? Yeah, yeah. How did you get that gig? That's pretty cool. Uh, they, they came well, to the well, USC? Or? You know, they gave it to the, fa- the faculty member. There was a faculty member there uh, who, you know, he had his connections and he was getting paid probably obscene amounts of money to do this. <laughs> and, and then he said, all right, I'll hire some undergrad and pay him far less than obscene yeah. amounts of money. Make a, make to, a healthy profit. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. But it was cool. I, you know, I got to do some very, very interesting, cool stuff. Um, and learn a huge amount, um, and learn a little bit about academia. I published my first paper as an undergrad uh, okay. in ICRA, International Conference on Robotics and Automation. Um, still going strong today. It is, yeah. yeah. Still one of the primary conferences in robotics. What was your paper on? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Uh, I built uh, what was called a reduced complexity vision system. It was a fovea- a piece of hardware that did foveated computer vision, because you did not have the ability back then to process a lot of pixels right? Because computers weren't very fast. So what if we could make a digitizer that allowed you to specify the resolution of sampling at each point in an image? Okay. Um, so, you know, in the center of the image, we want very dense sampling. Uh, right. At the edges of the image, we want very uh, sparse sampling. So we could do dynamic attention type algorithms. Okay. So I built a piece of hardware, like, a you know, basically with an analog NTSC digitizer, because it was all NTSC cameras. Um, and then, right, so this is going old school, this is analog, old school. yeah, CCD camera, <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Not the digital camera you're going to interface to on your cell phone. No, the yeah. uh, you know, FireWire was sort of a thing back then. Right. Um, there was no USB three or anything. So you had to stuff. do frame grabbers. Frame grabbers, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So interface to a frame grabber, built this big memory map of you know where we want to sample and what, and had you know, CPU interface to it. And it was this tiny little CPU, little Motorola CPU. 25 minutes to process an image later. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, I wrote a paper on it um, and the paper was horrible. And, you know, the- Why uh, was it horrible? Well, because I, I was an undergrad. I mean, they and, accepted it. Uh, well, after, <laughs> after a little bit of help, um, you know, I had co-authors who helped me with this. Uh, you know, I, I remember writing the first draft of this and I gave it to Dr. Becky and he looks at it and he's a very kind man. He's a very kind man. And he calls to one of the grad students and says, maybe you should help Parag with this, right? And, and it was his way of saying, uh, please don't submit this. Uh, and so he helped me with it, and, you know, because it had no conclusions. It had no, here's why we did this. It had no motivation. It was basically a tech description of what I did. Um, and so, you know, again, but I got huge experience. I, you know, I got my first taste of what it meant to publish something and what was something publishable. Right. Um, and so all of this stuff, I think, prepped me well for grad school. Uh, and then I got, you know, uh, I applied to CMU and I was, again, fortunate enough to get in. Uh, and so I came to Pittsburgh in 95. 
Were you at CMU for robotics specifically yes. at this point in time? Absolutely. Okay. So I was admitted into the PhD program in the Robotics Institute. Awesome. Yeah. So at that point, I was pretty sure that I knew that that was my career. Okay. And which professors did you work most with at CMU? Yeah. So my advisors uh, were Chuck Thorpe and Dean Pomerleau. Uh-huh. Um, so both of them, for anyone who knows, has followed the history of driverless cars and self-driving. Uh, certainly in the United States, uh, they were um, some of the, the earliest developers, the earliest innovators in this space. Um, you know, walking into your building, I saw a picture of uh, NavLab 5. Yep, we got it uh, on the mural there. Yep, on the mural, exactly. You know, no hands across America. Yep. That happened the summer before I arrived at CMU. And so that was Chuck and Dean, one of his grad students, Todd Yoakum. It was really yep. Dean and Todd Yoakum who did the primary work on that. Yep. Um, but that was the stuff I was interested in. You know, I was interested in driverless cars, uh, you know, well before it became as big a thing as it, as it is today. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I was fortunate. Uh, I, got, I got to work with uh, amazing faculty and grad students. Uh, I, I, the, thing, the thing that I worked on specifically was lane departure warning systems. So uh, Dean had been working on lane departure warning systems for a while. Uh, my, you know, little incremental contribution to the state of the art and all of that was building models that would look at how you drive. Yeah. And are you, you know, are you a straight and narrow driver? Are you somebody who tends to kind of weave like this and modulate the alarms so that uh, it would be appropriately sensitive if you were a very straight and narrow driver, it would give you a little bit more leeway if you were sort of the, the, the weaving kind of driver uh, in order to reduce false alarms uh, and increase true alarms. Um, the whole point of that being- So it would basically learn- Mm-hmm. how a person normally drove yeah, and warn them when they were driving outside of their normal. Exactly. And now we have, I don't know if they do that quite that adaptive. Not a whole lot. Today. Not much. But we have lane departure warning Absolutely. all over the place. Now, Absolutely. Right? Now there's cars that are coming. Absolutely. I, my wife and I just bought a car and I was really surprised how much intelligence it had yeah. in it. Yeah. hundred um, percent. A lot of the things that the NavLab group developed early on at CMU uh, advanced cruise control, right? Using a radar to look at the car in front of you and decide how far, you know, how far to stay away from that car and control your speed uh, as a more intelligent form of cruise control. That was on NavLab 5. Um, yeah. It was one of the first implementations of that. Uh, so what the interesting thing was the NavLab group, you know, they did seminal work in just the, you know, on-highway automated driving, of course, but they also took a very practical viewpoint of what kind of assistance systems are going to be important in the future, mm-hmm. right? Lane departure warning, advanced cruise control, uh, emergency braking, things like that were all sort of early developments and testing uh, at CMU. Um, so it was fascinating to be a part of the NavLab group during that time. That And that was some of the, the initial work which led to this whole huge Absolutely. driverless car industry which exists today. Absolutely. So, and so, of course, all you guys stayed on that career path. Not even a little bit. And you know, you're all multi-billionaires <laughs> That's right. now from uh, yeah, starting exactly. all those driverless car companies. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The interesting thing is if, if you look at the founders of the driverless car companies here in Pittsburgh, they can all trace themselves back you know, through a couple of generations yeah. to the early work done by Dean and Chuck and Todd and that sure. entire group. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then that, I think a lot of that work led to when I got involved with driverless cars, which was DARPA Grand Challenge, and a lot of those people from CMU, a lot of that initial seminal work was used when CMU entered, and then CMU ended up winning, you know, the DARPA Urban Challenge. That's right. At one point in time. So that was, and then 
the rest is history. The rest there. is history, right? The, the rest has turned into multi-billion-dollar companies, some of yeah. which are about to go public or, yep. or are in the process of going going public. Yep. Um, it, you know, it, uh, the, this notion of we're going to take, you know, very early on, NavLab One, I believe, we're going to take this gigantic van, we're going to put essentially a supercomputer in the back seat. Yeah, what were the computers like in those initial? Robot cars. We call yeah. And when we we did the upper grand challenge, we ended up calling those cars robots. Now yeah. they just call them, you know. Now they're cars. But yeah, <laughs> the grad students in the lab yep. that were geeking out about it just called it the robot. Yeah, yeah. What were the computers like that actually drove those? Cars? So by the time I got there, um, we were using PCs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were big desktop PCs that were in the trunk of the car. Uh, there might be a couple of them. Um, they were three eighty six and four eighty six processors. Yeah. So you know. Uh, Getting ahead a little bit, you know, after I started my company and, and you know, I'd talk to my guys about doing certain things and I'd get, you know, a little bit of pushback sometimes on compute resources or can we do this much in this amount. It was very difficult at times and I often failed at not going back to the, well, we did this on a 386, right? Uh, sort of, you know, walking uphill both ways in snow, right. uh, old man yelling at the clouds kind right. of, uh, uh, you know, response. To How do we do stuff. it back then? If we, yeah, you know. yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, to be fair to everybody, we did some very simple things, but we did them very well. We were very cognizant of the amount of computing capability we had available. Um, we could only drive forward on a highway because we only had enough CPU for one camera looking for and maybe a radar and maybe a late radars were coming a little bit later. Yep, they weren't even really right, on the they market. Were, right. So we were so everyone talks now about hey, we use radars, radars, cameras, um, and we use GPS. And then people say, Hey, we're trying to move away from GPS so that we can do things in big urban canyons and not rely on GPS right. quite as much. And we look back and go, Well, we started all of this before GPS even was launched, literally, right? The satellites weren't in the sky yet. Uh, so we didn't have maps. We didn't have LADAR. We had um, a little bit of radar and really a camera. Wow. Yeah. So we had to do things old school. You know, what today would be considered old school, but back then was incredibly innovative. Yep. And they had some big wins, some real yeah. successes yeah. in actually getting that stuff to work. Yeah. And it's amazing that the technologies evolved to the point now where some of these companies are ready to go public. Absolutely. We're, we're using some of the technology in our cars. Absolutely. Today. Yeah. They're saving lives, hopefully. I mean, I actually feel safer when I turn on the lane departure warning system, which they've kind of souped up to be like a level two autonomy Yeah, it thing. nudges you back in. Right. When you're driving right. in a lane, it'll keep you in the lane. In my view, like I feel safer driving in that car because if I- you know, yell at the kids at the back seat, right. you know, stop messing. <laughs> you could take your eyes off the road for that split second mm-hmm. and feel like you have that extra yep. person driving You're adjusting the, the radio or something. Yeah. yeah. Although everyone's been in that scenario where mm-hmm. you've exactly adjusted the radio and then you look up and you see that someone slammed on the brakes in front right. of you and you're like, oh. <laughs> but now you have a person, not a person, but an AI system watching for that scenario for yeah. you. So No, absolutely. I, you know, I look at the tech in my wife's car and my car and- it was unimaginable even 10 years ago and, and pure R&D 20, 25 years ago. So uh, it, it's it's a sign of a maturing industry. Uh, and it's great to see that. So you started some companies. I did. After, well, I started a company, yes. Yeah. A company, yeah. right. You were part of Applied Perception. Correct. First, that was after CMU. Yep. Right? So that was Todd Yoakum's company. Yeah. Right. And so then after that, which he 
That, that company was acquired it as was, well. It was, yeah. We, we sold it to Kinetic North America. Okay. Yep, and Foster awesome. Miller. Yeah. So, so a really cool company. Mm-hmm. I was actually doing some work yep. around the same time. That's how we I were, met you. We were, exactly. Yep. We were doing work on the joint architecture for unmanned systems. You guys were doing some unmanned vehicle perception stuff. Yep. And then I think we were doing something similar at uh, UF, University probably. of Florida. Yeah. yeah. So, but then after that, you started- I did. Yeah. So I, you know, uh, I graduated CMU. Uh, I actually didn't go to applied perception right away. I stayed for, uh, at NREC for three years. Yep. Uh, worked on automated lawnmowers. Yep. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Our, our field tests were at country clubs, you know, so it was really hard duty, right? To, you go to a country club somewhere in Minneapolis and you run a lawnmower for, you know, a week. So had fun doing that. <laughs> Uh, spent a little bit of time at a company called Probotics, um, which built this uh, early robot vacuum cleaner called the Psy, which later turned on to Athon. Uh, it was Henry Thorne's company. Oh, yeah. So I spent about four or five months with them, helping them with some path planning and software development. Cool. You know, I'd known Todd Yoakum for years. Uh, we were friends and colleagues at CMU. He was a few years ahead of me. Mm-hmm. And he and Dean had started a company called Assistware. Okay. And the idea there was to commercialize a lane departure warning system. Right. Okay. Uh, and so they were doing that and they were having some success with that. Uh, but Todd also wanted to focus on the DOD market. And so they split the companies off. Uh, and Dean focused on the commercial uh, lane departure warning company, Assistware. Todd started focusing on the Defense Department work, the DOD work, uh, through uh, applied perception. Um, this would so have been early 2000? This would have been around 99, 2000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thereabouts. So that's interesting. It was right around the time, I think Mobileye got started around yes. the same time. Yes. And ended up selling for like $14 billion yep. to Intel. Exactly. And they probably started with lane departure warning type uh, stuff. You know, I don't know their history very, very well, but um, yeah. I, I think that technology has basically evolved to what exactly. is used in a lot. Actually, I think Tesla ended up using some Tesla used Mobileye, their Gen 1. Back in the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what's in my car right now. And I, yeah, uh, a little bit controversial, but I trust that way more than what I see coming out of Tesla today. But you know, <laughs> no comment. On no that. comment on that. That's right. I don't want my Tesla deactivated automatically. <laughs> you know? right. Elon Musk that's is right. going to punish you from the that's sky. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I you know I joined API and it was it was interesting. Uh, so Todd called me up, said, "Hey, you know, we started this company. We, we could use somebody." Uh, and I was actually at NREC at this time, um, and so. Uh, I wasn't quite ready to leave the work I was doing with Toro. I was enjoying it. So I said, you know, not quite yet. Calls about six, nine months later. Says, hey, how about now? I was interested at that point. Things were looking good. Um, so Todd and I have an unofficial agreement to join. I haven't told NREC I'm leaving yet, uh, but I get a call three days later. Who were you working for at NREC? Uh, Sanjeev Singh. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he, he was the, the PI on the Toro project. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, so I get a call from Todd a few days later saying, don't quit your job. Apparently something had happened. Uh, and so some funding had fallen through, which you know happens. You happens know. all the time. Exactly. And so I hung around NREC for maybe another six, nine months, something like that. Uh, and then finally, the third time was a charm. It worked out. Uh, I was a third employee at that point. Um, and it was a blast. I learned a huge amount. Uh, I did a lot of you know fun, cool technical work. Um, I learned, you know, uh, I learned a lot from Todd about just running and growing a business, right? I mean, he had a model that he was using, uh, which was, uh, you know, heavily dependent at the time on defense work. Yep. Um, but, you know, again, at that period of history, there were no VCs investing in robotics, or right. very, very few. You know, so I think the strat- SBIRs, SBIR, contracts, government contracts, right. other types so of government contracts. SBIR is small business innovation and research. Right. So, uh, it's a way to uh, for a uh, a young company um, that wants to address the defense market or, or really the federal market in general uh, to get uh, non dilutive funding from the government to develop technology 
with very fair IP rights, where the company gets paid by the government to develop a solution to a problem, but then for the most part, gets to own the IP to that solution yep. uh, for a good number of years. And try to commercialize it. And try to commercialize it. Sell it to other exactly. companies. Right. Exactly. So that's actually still pretty common today. It is. Yeah. yeah. Lots of companies get mm -hmm. started, small businesses on SPIR. hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and so Todd was very successful with that model. Um, you know, he, he built good relationships with large uh, defense contractors. Um, I spent my time, like I said, developing technology. I got to really get a lot of experience in running programs. Right. And I got experience working with customers, um, you know, and, and what it meant to actually keep a customer happy and listen to a customer and not be the PhD who goes in and says, here's my cool idea and my solution and here's why you should love this. Um, you know, I got a lot of good trial by fire on, you know, just, just stay quiet and listen to him, right? <laughs> listen to her, listen to the customer. Uh, and so Todd was very good at sort of beating some of those lessons in. Um, I don't know where he got it from, but he was naturally good at it. He figured it out. Yeah, yeah. he figured it out. Um, and, and so I got to see this model. Uh, and so it was successful. We grew the company to uh, maybe 14, 15 people. Um, and then he sold it in 2007 uh, to Foster Miller. Uh, which was owned by Kinetic North America. So they, Foster Miller was the company that built the Talon robot, which was one of two robots uh, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, for a bomb disposal. Right. Right. So for explosive ordnance disposal. So these are robots that really saved lives, right? A hundred percent. You know, you could guys point in the to field, military guys in yes. the field using these robots that go up and poke and try to disarm bombs. That's right. Literally it's, it, it's save a life and limb. Dangerous job. And, and there were soldiers who will say this robot literally saved my life. Uh, and the coolest thing about being a part of Foster Miller and Kinetic was when you would uh, you'd go to their facility and you'd see two things. You'd see a warehouse of, of, of you know, the size of what you have out here, full of robots getting ready to be shipped. Yep. Right. So that was very rare back then. Yeah. Uh, still kind of rare today. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is you would see sort of the wall of heroes, which were the robots that were exploded. Uh, the ones that were in the field that got that got blown up and got shipped back because they were unrepairable. Each one of those had a story. Behind each one it. of them had a story. Each yeah. one of them meant a life was saved. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, it, super it, powerful. It, exactly. And so it sort of strengthened my resolve, right? And so so to 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 work on robotics that had a, you know a, a benefit to them uh, that could help our warfighter that could help you know national security. Um, you know, and, and I know there's some controversy about that. I know some people shy away from that kind of work, but we were always interested in sort of the, the defensive and safety capabilities that robots could offer people who were willing to put themselves in harm's way to help and protect the rest of us. So this is what led to you starting? Yeah. So Naya? I, I, Naya? Naya. 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 Yep. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, well, we got acquired in 2007. Uh, I spent a couple of years essentially running apl the Applied Perception Division right. uh, of Foster Miller. Uh, and they acquired another company called Automatica at the time also, which made the Dragon Runner robot, which is a small, throwable military robot that Hagen and Nolet Schempf uh, owned. Yep. Uh, and so the other cool thing that happened was I got to learn a lot from Hagen and Nolet. Right, so I had more CMU guys. Uh, yeah, more CMU folks, exactly. Uh, but folks who had built products, right, and and who had worked with you know with customers, uh, and you know Hagen was the the technical sort of engineering brain behind it. Uh, Nolet was the operational uh, uh, the whiz behind the company, and so I learned a lot of operational stuff from Nolet uh, over the two years I stayed at Foster Miller. So I, I was in this position where by 2009, I understood the defense market. I understood the technology, you know, just from my history and background. I had a lot of customer contacts. 
I'd had a couple of solid years of operational. How do you run a business? These experience. were customer contacts in the military. Yeah, and, and yeah, in and out. Some Got you know, it. some commercial as well. Um, and so I finally said, "All right, you know, um, I've gotten what I can. I think I'm going to go do something different now." And so at this point, I wasn't 100 percent sure about starting my own company. Um, I I spoke with a, a bunch of other companies, um, some who were interested, who are outside of Pittsburgh, but were interested in having a Pittsburgh presence. Because Pittsburgh was just starting to get that Robelberg vibe, you know, 12 years ago, um, and and so outside of Pittsburgh companies were seeing the value in having a Pittsburgh presence. And so I had a few offers to build a Pittsburgh operation for a couple of companies, and then I would look at those offers and I would say, all right, I'm responsible for customers, I'm responsible for PNL, I'm responsible for growing the organization. Other than the fact that they're going to be paying me a salary, this is no different than me doing this by myself. <laughs> So at that point, it, that was sort of the, the push, the final push saying, if I'm going to be doing this, I might as well do it by myself. Uh, and so, yeah, I started NEA um, in like, so around October of uh, 2009 um, with the idea of uh, going, at least initially going the SBIR route. Uh, and so this is where I did some things that I think were the right thing to do back then, but I would not do today. So um, these are your big lessons learned. Yeah, in well, there are at least some. You know, um, maybe other people would look at this and go, well, "You're crazy for doing it back then." <laughs> I wouldn't have even done that back then. These are the you always learn the biggest lessons. Like, yeah. in hindsight, in of the course. first six months of starting your company, what right. you would have done differently or right. better in those first you know six months to a year. Of yeah, company, right? I, I think in this case it was a little more about. I still think it was the right decision at the time. Right. But the ecosystem and, and the environment and the industry has changed. Right. Uh, the biggest one was I was a sole founder. Right. I started NAIA by myself. Didn't recruit anyone to join me. Didn't, you know, call up any of my CMU colleagues from API or anything and say, hey, I'm doing this. You want to come in, go have these. You know, none of that. I said, I'm doing this by myself. Right. Rule number one is being a sole founder can be a very, very rough road. And VCs tend not to look at that very uh, positively for the most part. That's true. Right. Uh, the other thing I did, which I think would be very difficult to do today, not impossible, but difficult, is I bootstrapped. I never took a dime of external funding. Um, so we lived off of work that we got through contracts, through you know, uh, R&D contracts, uh, product development contracts, uh, through commercial work we did for other organizations based on the technology we were developing. And so that, that was good because, again, as a sole founder, bootstrapping a company, I maintain 100% control, right? Um, and so that, you know, satisfied something in my psychology. I don't right. know what that is. <laughs> um, but it also meant our growth, uh, our growth path was limited. And so we were very fortunate. We, we grew and were profitable uh, every single year of our existence, you know, up until I sold the company uh, and after also, but just I'm saying, you know, up until that point. Um, but we certainly didn't grow at a rate that you would need to grow today in order to be able to deal with competition. Right. Right. There was, again, even in 2009, the amount of VC available for a robotics company was fairly small. You know, the commercial successes were companies like Foster Miller and iRobot. You know, the Roomba was a thing even in 2009, right? So that was one of the early commercial successes. There just wasn't, you know, the, the driverless car boom hadn't really started yet. Yep. Um, and so there weren't a huge number, you know, I had competitors, there were other companies doing things similar to us, some of them here in town, some of them outside of town, um, but it was still a fairly small world of robotics companies. I it knew was. every single CEO, right? So the big thing, if I understand you correctly, that's changed since 2009 yeah. is autonomous robots are now an industry. They're an industry. Yeah. That's it's right. It's not just a 
It's not a startups here. Yep. It's a couple of single person, yep. you know, founded businesses there. It's really a whole ecosystem Absolutely. of companies that are starting up. Absolutely. Now that I've sold the company, uh, I teach a CMU, right? I, I teach a couple of classes on, on how to build a robotic startup and how to run a robotic startup. And, and one of the early things I tell my students is the importance of having a well-rounded founding team, right? A founding team that includes, obviously, the, the, a technical co-founder, uh, somebody who has that sort of CEO gravitas experience, and then a domain expert in whatever industry you're in. Yeah. Right. If you're going to be in agriculture, have you know, if you can manage to get a you know somebody who uh, semi-retired uh, ag company executive, something like that. Right. Um, you know, someone uh, that knows the industry, has the contacts. Exactly. Knows what the market likes, what exactly. the market doesn't like. That exactly. Because kind of so much of your time is going to be spent on customer discovery and understanding right. what the market wants. Right. It helps a lot if you've got someone on your team who can interpret that for you, and who, and who can point you in the right direction, and who maybe has that rolodex that they can open up for you. Um, I did none of those things, right? I was a technical founder who had a couple of years of operational experience um, and said, I think, you know, I want to do off-road autonomy. I'm interested in that. Was that the initial vision for the company? What was the, yeah. like, the, the, the founding vision? What did you want to get into and um, how did that work? It was advanced R&D. I, I knew that that was my sweet spot. It was what I was interested in. And even at that time, uh, it was mostly where the funding was. Because again, most of the funding was still defense-related. Uh, and and the defense funding was all focused on building really advanced capabilities in AI and autonomy. Um, and so uh, we really focused in two main areas. One was developing on planning systems for uh, multi-robot collaboration. So allowing uh, UAVs, unmanned ground vehicles, potentially even surface vehicles to all loosely work together to achieve common mission goals. So there were things like um, you know task decomposition, task assignment, um, task allocation, scheduling, um, you know a very planning based thing. Software. Software. All software. All software. Uh, and then there was another side to it, which was the let's focus on really hard off road autonomy programs. Um, when you're under canopy, when you're in GPS denied environments, when you have vision only, and you don't want to use lidars that have emissions and you know alert the adversary to where you are. Um, that operate on trails and you know forestry, et cetera. Uh, and so we did a lot of work um, in that and continue to do a lot of work in autonomy in those very difficult areas where the problems and challenges are completely different than what you face in the on-road driverless car world. Right, right? autonomous cars. Very, very different problems. Um, but those are the things that interested me. And still at the time, just as hard to solve. Still just as hard to solve. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the driverless car problem, you've got pedestrians and bikes and cars and they're all behaving in semi-random chaotic fashion. Um, but in the drive, you know, in the off-road community, you've got, can I drive through that tall grass? Is that, you know, it, it looks like it's something in front of me, but it's probably just tall grass and I can push right through it. Or is there a, you know, is there a stake somewhere in the middle of that tall grass that I'm going to run right into? Right. Right. So there's some very difficult, and, and there's no GPS. Um, and so there's some very challenging problems in that domain that, that we were uh, fortunate to have, uh, enough to be able to address. So what I'm curious about now is for the future. Yeah. For the new entrepreneurs that are out there. You're teaching some yeah. of the newest entrepreneurs yeah. at CMU. What? What are the opportunity areas that you see for the next ten years? Yeah. Like what? What? What, what kind of advice? I mean, no, no one knows. Has the yeah. Crystal ball, I have no but, magic. Right. right. But I'm just curious what what your students are interested in doing, and where do you see the industry going? Um. So so we break up the class to a certain extent, uh, and we focus on uh, logistics and warehousing and, and your domain, 
Uh, we focus on field robotics, ag, construction, mining. Yeah. Um, we focus on mobility. Um, and, and mobility of all kinds, not just driverless cars, but delivery, drones, et cetera. Um, and we really look at those three areas. And you know, I have the, I have the students dive into companies that are in these areas and, and do their analyses of them. Um, and you know, all of these areas have opportunities in them. The biggest thing, and you know, to anyone in the, in the industry, this will be no surprise, the biggest issue we have right now is labor shortage in so many areas. Right? There's always been this visceral fear that robots are going to take away everyone's jobs. Um, but if you look at the construction industry, uh, it's fascinating. You can look at Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they tell you the number of folks working in construction has not been increasing at the pace that construction activity has been increasing. Right. But more importantly, the productivity of those people hasn't been increasing either. So in other industries, you have maybe the labor's not growing quite as fast, but individual productivity is skyrocketing because of automation and additional tools. And right. so that keeps up with demand. Right. That's not happening in construction. So there's a, a huge greenfield opportunity you have in construction. a widening gap. A widening gap. Growing where exactly more people are needed, basically, yeah, or right. something, or automation, or tools to help increase are productivity needed. Yeah. Uh, are needed, right? Um, you know, certainly uh, in mining, uh, all the large mining companies are making investments into mine automation, yep. um, and, and you know, there, there's a huge amount of progress there, right? That's publicly available. You can see what companies like uh, Caterpillar and Komatsu are doing, um, and so there's lots of opportunities there. The driverless car space, uh, I tend to caution people against a little bit right now. Right now? Um, yeah. Because <laughs> it's kind of at a peak. It's we'll a, yeah. Some yeah, things are happening. I, I, teach, I teach my students about the Gartner hype curve. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, the-, the, the What is the Gartner hype curve? For, yeah. For it's anyone fa- that doesn't know. Sure, fair, fair, uh, good question. Um, it is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, it is a curve that follows the hype around new technologies- through various phases of their early adoption, early adopter sort of, we think this is going to be the next best thing to slice bread, to where you think you get peak hype, peak hype, peak hype, and there's more and more activity around it. Then you get this thing called the trough of disillusionment, where people start to realize, oh, it's not quite what I thought it was going to be. But then you find, you know, oh, well, here's where it actually really does help. You know, here's where it really is productive, right? So you have a new technology. You think it's going to solve every problem under the sun. You realize it's really not going to. You get depressed about it. And then you kind of figure <laughs> out, well, it actually does help in these few cases. The whole industry the gets whole depressed it, it, about it. That's the right. Whole the, it, society gets right. depressed. Exactly. And it's not going to like be the, what know, it the, is. The AI winter kind of thing, right? right? Yeah. Uh, but applied to individual technologies. Um, and so, yeah, you know, driverless cars, they're probably somewhere around that peak right now. Um, and we're probably entering a little bit of that disillusionment, even though there's so much activity there, because I think people are starting to understand we're not going to have highways full of fully automated, hands-free driving, you know, uh, cutting the accident rate down to zero. That's just not a thing that's going to happen anytime soon. But the technology being developed by all of these companies absolutely will enhance safety. Right, and they have to figure out they have to figure out the right strategy for deployment. They have to figure out the right areas it's going to really help in. But the work they're doing is all going to it's going to revolutionize transportation. I, I firmly believe that. Haven't completely figured out exactly where and how, or maybe they have, and you know that's why they're going public. And the rest of us will. That's the secret. That's we'll the all secret. Find out that's after right. They go public. Exactly. Get to know some. Exactly. Cool. Awesome. Well, Parag, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great way to kind of cap it off and what's going that Gartner yeah. hype cycle is yeah. exactly right it's uh 
we're entering a phase now. I think you're right about the driverless cars. I think we're going to maybe see a little bit more of reality sink in, but there's a ton of opportunities out there beyond driverless cars for tons of different industries. Like you said, construction is a big one coming up. In fact, I think there's a couple of Pittsburgh robotics startups that are yes. getting into construction. Absolutely. Robotics now. So yeah. maybe some of your students will be involved with that. I think some of them will be, yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. All right. All right, Parag, thank you so thank much you. for being on the show. And uh, we'll have me. you back soon. Absolutely. 